Is geoengineering a viable option for protecting the planet from the ravages of climate change? Is there a secret purpose that geoengineering serves? We'll get some thoughts from Michael J. Murphy, the award-winning director-producer of two documentaries on the subject. And how do we as a society and a species confront the prospect of climate collapse and the other environmental hazards threatening this planet? Could the narratives we tell affect the way human beings rise to the challenge of protecting the Earth and themselves? Author and sustainability columnist Carrie Saxifridge joins us in the second half hour to discuss her new book, The Big Swim. On this week's program, Earth Week interviews, geoengineering, and changing the world through stories. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 24, 2015. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. In late February, our assessment of the staged ISIS videos was confirmed. According to Florida-based Terrorism Research and Analysis Consortium, the 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians purported to have been decapitated in the video entitled Signed with Blood to the Nation of the Cross was ruled to have been staged due to the excessive anomalies seen in the dramatic five-minute film. While the newest ISIS video appears to depict a shocking escalation of terror, it fails to provide comprehensive evidence of a violent event and therefore should be looked as nothing more than propaganda to gain public support for Western foreign policy objectives, namely the fraudulent proxy campaign in Syria. Additionally, this latest ISIS event also serves to deflect from the controversial military intervention in Yemen. This is something we've been outlining here at 21 Wire over the past month, while most Western media outlets have neglected to discuss Washington's new proxy. That comes from the article, Stagecraft, ISIS video execution of Ethiopians in Libya appears fake by Sean Helton, posted April 22nd, originally appearing at 21st Century Wire. Australia has again declared war on its indigenous people, reminiscent of the brutality that brought universal condemnation on apartheid South Africa. Aboriginal people are to be driven from homelands where their communities have lived for thousands of years. In Western Australia, where mining companies make billion-dollar profits exploiting Aboriginal land, the state government says it can no longer afford to support the homelands. 
vulnerable populations already denied the basic services most Australians take for granted are on notice of dispossession without consultation and eviction at gunpoint. Yet again, Aboriginal leaders have warned of a, quote, a new generation of displaced people, unquote, and, quote, cultural genocide, unquote. That comes from the article, Australia, the secret country again wages war on its own people, by John Pilger, posted April 22nd. In fact, as American military operations have ramped up across Africa, reaching a record 674 missions in 2014, reports of excessive drinking, sex with prostitutes, drug use, sexual assaults, and other forms of violence by AFRICOM personnel have escalated, even though many of them have been kept under wraps for weeks or months, sometimes even for years. Quote, Our military is built on a reputation of enduring core values that are at the heart of our character, unquote. Major then Brigadier General Wayne Grigsby Jr., the former chief of APRICOM's subordinate command, Combined Joint Task Force Horn of Africa, wrote in an address to troops last year, quote, Part of belonging to this elite team is living by our core values and professionalism every day. Incorporating those values into everything we do is called our profession of arms, unquote. But legal documents, Pentagon reports, and criminal investigation files, many of them obtained by Tom Dispatch through dozens of Freedom of Information Act requests and never before revealed, demonstrate that AFRICOM personnel have all too regularly behaved in ways at odds with those core values. That comes from the article, Sex, Drugs, and Dead Soldiers, What U.S. Africa Command Doesn't Want You to Know, by Nick Terse, posted April 22nd, originally appearing at Tom Dispatch. Inflation has rocketed, salaries have collapsed, businesses across Ukraine have closed. In short, people don't have any money in Ukraine anymore. Sales of new cars down 67% year-on-year. Production of cars down 96%. 46 banks declared insolvent in the last year. As for the eternal thorn in Ukraine's side, corruption, one which apparently became so pressing, one of the defining aims of Maidan was to extricate it, it's even worse than it was before. And for Ukrainian soldiers killed in action in Donbass, sources were estimating that at over 20,000 last August. Across Ukraine, extreme poverty, hyperinflation, unemployment, and relatives who left or were mobilized to fight in Donbass disappeared forever, whose fate will never be known. That comes from the article, Ukraine as I Knew It is Over Forever, by Graham Phillips, posted April 23rd, originally appearing at Russian Insider. As we will demonstrate, there is a strong forensic case to be made for Jokar's innocence. As 21 Wire outlined previously, there are a number of key points and unique anomalies that have been overlooked in this case. None, however, are as compelling as this smoking gun. Positioned near the finish line, we can reveal what could very well be the real suspect in this bombing, a person dressed as a black-haired woman or purse lady. Her image can be clearly seen in multiple photographs taken on the day of the incident, and based on the evidence we'll present, it's very likely that this person was responsible for the second Boston bombing explosion. That comes from the article, 
in defense of Jokar Tsarnyev, the real smoking gun in Boston, by Kurt Hastel and Patrick Henningsen, posted April 23rd, originally appearing at 21st Century Wire. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. As this program is being recorded, preparations are underway for a global march against chemtrails and geoengineering to happen Saturday, April 25th. There's also apparently legislation in the works aimed at fostering more geoengineering projects. Michael J. Murphy is a multi-award winning director, producer, political activist, and president of the Coalition Against Geoengineering. As an independent reporter and community organizer, his work includes directing and co-producing the groundbreaking documentaries which have awakened millions to the environmental threats of geoengineering programs, including Why in the World Are They Spraying? and What in the World Are They Spraying? He joined us by phone from Chicago. Good afternoon, Mr. Murphy. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing very well, Michael, and uh, thank you for having me on, and thanks for covering this issue that those of us who have really researched uh, have, have a lot of concerns but also a lot of faith that we can get these programs stopped. So thank you for covering it. I wonder if you could remind our listeners, what do you mean when you talk about geoengineering? Geoengineering is defined as the deliberate large-scale manipulation of the Earth's climate. So uh, we have government scientists um, and corporations together that have come up with this idea to put chemicals into our sky, typically uh, sulfates or aluminum, and bury them. And the idea or how they're selling this to the public is basically by airplanes or other methods, by dispersing chemicals into the sky, creating uh, artificial clouds and blocking the sun. So uh, aluminum is, is one of the ingredients that we've been finding, you know, in very high amounts in rain tests from around the world. They've escalated several thousand percentage points in God the past 10 years. And, uh, but, but anyways, that, the idea is that if you put a reflective particle, such as aluminum, into the sky, it's lightweight, it's very reflective, it will reflect sunlight back into space and cool the planet. Now, geoengineers and many scientists and governments deny that they're doing this. All of the tests that we see uh, indicate, yes, that they definitely have begun these programs, probably for the past 30 years. And what's interesting, what we see in the sky, these long trails behind airplanes, that do not dissipate. They're different from a contrail, which is short for condensation trail. A condensation trail is uh, literally ice crystal. So when a jet flies at high altitudes, typically you'll see a white trail behind it that usually dissipates within a couple of seconds. Kind of similar to when we breathe in cold weather. You can see your breath and then it quickly disappears. Well, what we're seeing now on a regular basis now, again, matches uh, what geoengineers deny they're doing but say they want to do. It's these long trails that do not dissipate. They spread out. They create artificial clouds. And then the fallout from what we're seeing in the sky is uh, it matches what geoengineers, again, say they want to put into our atmosphere. It matches a number of uh, geoengineering patents or some, something in the 90s, I think, of uh, devices 
patents for devices to specifically spray these metals into our sky, so it matches a number of patents. And uh, the consequences that we're seeing in terms of uh, oh, diversions in our jet streams, droughts in certain areas, floods in other areas, crop loss, um, and then the human health impl implications, you know, these are concerns that geoengineers say that their programs will do if they start them. Obviously, according to our research, and I think once people uh, watch what and why in the world are they spraying, they'll get a, a very clear idea that these programs have begun. So we've seen a lot of consequences and a lot of concerns and a lot of uh, just unquantifiable human health and uh, ecosystem collapses. So it's, it's a big concern of ours. Now, Michael Murphy, there's documentation showing patents for weather modification uh, uh, instruments. There's uh, even a document from 1966 on uh, owning the weather, but also in areas where you have these chemtrails, they're usually follow-ups in the form of uh, increased amounts of, I think the, the, the elements you mentioned were aluminum, barium, and strontium, and it's working its way into plants, it's working its way into animal tissues, working its way into human tissues. I'm having difficulty understanding how people aren't able to con connect the dots. I mean, I understand, you know, you've got to be skeptical. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But how, how is it that uh, there's, no, there's no, you know, those connections aren't being made? Or, or are they being made and just suppressed? Well, we, um, our, my website is coalitionagainstgeoengineering.org. We steer people to... Uh, that w website, and then also to uh, Arizona Skywatch, and there are a couple of other good websites out there that, that we recommend that people go to. So you can find the testing, uh, again, on coalitionagainstgeoengineering.org, but uh, there is um, a mass awakening going on. So we've hit critical mass, we believe, and we've really seen the dynamics of what we call our movement change in the past year. So uh, when we started this in 2010, you know, I, I did a video where I went out onto Hollywood Boulevard. I was asking people, and they were clearly spraying above us. If they knew what was happening right above them, nobody knew. So that was when I decided to, uh, to produce What in the World Are They Spraying? That got out to millions of people and was a big catalyst of the masses waking up. However, we're probably still, you know, we estimate probably at, oh, 12 to 14 percent in terms of global population being aware of this, and I think there are a couple of reasons. First of all, it just literally sounds ludicrous when you say airplanes are creating artificial skies, uh, clouds in our sky, and, and they're manipulating the weather. You know, it just, it's something that's not, or up until now, mainstream is starting to touch it, but it's something that really was far beyond my belief when I first heard it. When I started researching it, you know, I came to the conclusion, as well as millions of other people, that it's literally happening. But again, if, if you're dependent on the, the corporate mainstream media or based on your belief system without researching, you know, I think, I think a lot of people who take that route in terms of learning have a difficult time grasping this. It's not only when we, not only, it's when we become independent, we start doing our own research that we learn uh, that these programs are happening. In the mainstream, you know, is uh, funded by the, the corporations, many of those corporations who benefit from these programs who have a monetary interest in them. So right now they're illegal, they're not legal. Uh, Geoengineer scientists and governments are 
moving towards a global climate treaty that is expected to legalize geoengineering. That is expected to happen this December. But at this point, we do have the ability to move forward in lawsuits and really take aggressive action. So it's not something that they are going to blow the whistle on. What they are going to do is try and make it legal. Once they do, then they will start a public propaganda campaign uh, to try to sell this to the public. Is something that might be damaging. You know, it's something that's risky. However, they're selling it as a way to supposedly, you know, deal with the supposed global warming issue. So the idea, again, is, yeah, it's going to create problems. It could disrupt the food supply of over two two billion people, you know, and we're going to have soil changes in our soil pH, all the things that we're seeing. But we have to do it to save you from the supposed threat of global warming. What's interesting, what turns out, because we have a changing climate, uh, many of the scientific community and governments who are creating global governance, um, they're planning on transferring potentially trillions of dollars of money out of the hands of individuals into the hands of a few, literally disintegrating nations around the world. Again, consolidation of power. Uh, This includes our Native American nations. If they sign on to this treaty, they will literally be giving up their sovereignty. And we will have unelected bodies, such as the IPCC, who will be mandating, you know, very micromanaging our life, uh, essentially, if we allow this to happen. Could you talk a little bit about what you see as the main reasons for utilizing this technology? You you stated uh, supposed uh, anthropogenic climate change, uh, as if I, I don't, I'm not sure. It sounds it sounds as if you're a little bit skeptical on that point. But uh, do, do you see that as the, the 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 that that is the the ultimate rationale, or just an excuse, or well, what is the re- reasons for adjusting the climate this way? Well, there, there are many objectives that can be met by putting aerosols in, into, uh, into our atmosphere. I want to address the, the CO2 global warming issue. And what's interesting is we don't have a consensus in the scientific community. And I tend to take a middle road approach to this. And there's been a lot of arguing in, in our movement and, you know, even in, in the mainstream about whether it's warming, whether the planet's cooling. Geoengineering, which no question about it, is ongoing. It changes our planet's temperature, and yes, it changes our weather and literally creates most, if not all, of what is being said of the symptoms of global warming. So based on the fact that climate models do not have geoengineering included, which is most, if not all, of the factors in terms of our changing climate, they're flawed and uh, even fraudulent. So being that, again, the climate models do not have the major equation in them, you cannot prove whether the planet's warming. And therefore, you cannot move forward with the legislation that we're seeing. We have 500 new climate laws that are scheduled to go into effect this year, uh, including carbon taxes, and they've already gone into effect in California. And again, we have this development of what they're trying to do is creating a global governance to monitor these, circumventing our Constitution here in the United States and then moving forward with uh, essentially a global control system, which includes a transfer of trillions of dollars of wealth. So we're demanding that until geoengineering is stopped for a period of five years minimum, uh, that all mandates, all talks, um, and moving forward with this global warming agenda must be halted immediately and all climate 
uh, treaties and also the legislation that has been mandated uh, already is immediately rescinded. So we're taking legal action uh, to get this stopped, and hopefully what we'll do is buy some time and bring in lawsuits. If the legislation does go through and this treaty goes through, what it will do is eliminate our ability to file lawsuits. Uh, again, it will bring jurisdiction out of the United States and other countries into the hands of an unelected body. And we're looking at some very, very dramatic changes in the basic ways that we live based on a flawed model. So you cannot put forth legislation based on something that is not provable. So uh, mm. my goal is to get geoengineering on the table to prove that it's happening, uh, which hopefully we'll, uh, we'll talk about a little bit. But a, a lot of things can be done. So your question was, you know, what are some of the things that reasons why they would be spraying? Well, and why in the world are they spraying? Although I think there are many objectives to these programs, many things that can be accomplished. We covered what appears to be probably the, um, the, the number one reason. We believe that's weather control. And it's interesting because geoengineers talk about the fact that, you know, anytime you put a particle in the sky, it's going to affect the way that clouds condense and nucleate. And that's create droughts in certain areas and floods in other areas. So their argument is, well, being that geoengineering will create these types of weather conditions, what we will have to do is harness control over the weather. And what's interesting is they're talking about how to give benefits to certain countries that sign on to geoengineering. And I think some of those benefits are rain, precipitation, the ability to grow food. And essentially, uh, I'll talk about the mechanics and then talk about the reasons. Uh, when you put in aerosol, let's say aluminum, and that's what we're finding, again, in rain tests around the world, into the atmosphere, geoengineers, again, are selling this as uh, aluminum is very reflective and it's lightweight, so it will stay up in the sky very longer. What it also does, it's a very effective conductor in our sky. So when they put, uh, typically what you'll see before big storm systems come in, that's when you'll see the plane spraying. That's when you'll see the clouds completely, uh, the skies completely milked out. You know, it's this milky white from the trails behind airplanes. What they do, because aluminum's a conductor, they have the ability, whether it's through the HARP system or the other uh, RF programs, they have the ability to heat up that cloud cover. And when you heat up a part of the atmosphere, what it does, it expands and it rises. And in that rising, what you can do is create a low-pressure vacuum so you can bring storms into certain areas or even divert jet streams. So what we're seeing, for instance, in the pattern that we've been seeing for a couple of years is this polar vortex. And it's this ridge of high pressure sitting off of the Pacific. And I just got off the phone with uh, former TV weatherman Scott Stevens, who's been watching this very close. And what they're doing is by heating up a part of the Pacific, they're diverting the jet stream that should be coming into California, and that's taking precipitation and warmer weather and pulling it up into our polar regions. Uh, as a result, like any river or stream, it wants to correct itself. So we're seeing warm air going up into the Arctic, so we're seeing very high temperatures there, but as a result, it's bringing all the cold weather down into the Midwest and also the East Coast. So we're seeing more than normal precipitation and very, very cold temperatures. And I was on a radio show a couple months ago in South Carolina or North Carolina, 
and they had below zero temperatures. But then in Anchorage, the temperatures were like, I think, 47 degrees or 52 degrees. And that's because they're diverting the jet stream into those areas. And there are a lot of things that can be done um, by diverting the jet stream. For instance, we're looking at a huge water problem right now in California. And as a result, we're seeing this uh, consolidation of power. We're seeing water, which the global elite that's what they like to call themselves, are calling the new oil. So they're do, what they're doing is uh, it's called public-private partnerships, and it's part of uh, what the Clinton administration called Agenda 21, and I think the Bush administration as well. It's the 21st century agenda, and that is to seize control over all natural systems. So when you lack water in a certain region, the government has to, or they come in with the excuse, with corporations, this is the public-private partnerships, to take control of that water and take control of certain lands. And through that, they can really control the corporate food supply, the political system, and literally uh, come in and, and, and take ownership of the natural resources. And it's a consolidation of power. So that's one thing that we're seeing coming in. And we're also, as a result of this, we're seeing land grabs. I was just at a uh, Delta uh, meeting in the Delta in California. It was a water rights meeting with a lot of farmers. And Jerry Brown just declared uh, California uh, a state of emergency. And in that state of emergency, he can seize control uh, through eminent domain of any property that he wants. So what's going on? They're literally dictating who gets water. And the smaller organic farmers... Uh, are not getting water, and what they're doing is dictating the water to the big agriculture farmers. So again, this is a consolidation of power, uh, as well as a decrease in our food supply here in the United States. Um, Could you United talk about how uh, entities like Monsanto uh, profit from this? Yeah, Monsanto definitely uh, profits from this, and we covered this in, in Why in the World Are They Spraying? And what happens, I live on an organic farm uh, on Maui, and uh, we covered a couple of farmers, and we're seeing this worldwide because geoengineering uh, changes our soil pH. It toxifies our soils with aluminum. We're seeing crop loss, and we're also seeing ecosystem collapses around the world. And geoengineering creates something that's called abiotic stress. Uh, what is abiotic stress? Abiotic stress is anything that stresses the soil. It's too much moisture, drought conditions, uh, fungal overgrowth, because now we have 20% less sun hitting the earth. We have an overgrowth of fungus. It's literally anything that uh, will stress the soil, including uh, heavy metal contamination. Well, Monsanto, now that we're seeing all of these losses, and again, the farm that I live on, they've seen about a 60% decline in their yields in the past 10 years. USDA is uh, stating about the by the year 2030, we are going to see a 30% more increase in crop loss due to abiotic stress. Well, Monsanto has developed a new genetically modified seed that addresses abiotic stress, and it's in everything from apples to uh, zucchini. So what it is, I believe, it's if, looking back at the way that we live on Maui, a lot of people grow their own food. They're dependent off of natural seeds and natural rain, and natural land. And through that, they're not serving this corporate system. So it appears that this corporate system 
in part is literally destroying our ability to live off of nature or off of God and coming in, destroying that, and then making us dependent on these new corporate seeds. Many of them are what are called terminator seeds, so the plant will not regenerate seeds. So what happens? The farmer has to go back to Monsatan year (laughs) after year after year, purchasing seeds and really becomes dependent on them. So it's, it's a big shift of power, and it's a shift of power from our creation or God's creation into the hands of man or into the hands of this new system. Okay. Does that I, make sense? Uh, well, yeah, in a sinister kind of way. Uh, do you think you could, I'm just about out of time, do you think you could possibly just maybe wrap up where, where people can go for information, what can they do to, to reverse the tide, as it were? Absolutely. Well, I, I think the first thing you can go to whyintheworldarethesprained.com. Uh, we encourage everybody who orders a DVD to make copies and hand out for free if you can't afford it. Uh, uh, films are available for free, both Why in the World Are They Sprained, What in the World Are They Sprained, on YouTube. So please take time to learn about this and then get out to your communities because this is literally, there are a lot of issues out there and many of them are very important. This is, I believe, based on our research the most important and the most pressing issue that we will ever have to deal with. So you can go to the coalition against geoengineering.org, and we're starting a class action lawsuit. We're initiating it right now, and that is the geoengineeringactionnetwork.org. You can find more information. And then I post daily on my What in the World Are They Spraying Facebook page, so you can find more information there. Okay, Michael Murphy, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much for covering this. Really appreciate it. We've been speaking with Michael Murphy, a filmmaker and anti-geoengineering activist. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. Earth Day is celebrated on April 22nd each year. The annual occasion has over the years developed the reputation of being co-opted or co-optable by the same corporate entities that are believed to be responsible for generating the threats to our environment. For example, Monsanto, the same company mentioned in the previous interview as profiting and being invested in biosphere-threatening geoengineering practices, put out an Earth Day post on the company's blog, applauding itself for how through a combination of improved agronomic practices and improved technology, farmers using their products have been able to grow a bushel of corn using 30% less land, 53% less irrigation water, and 44% less energy than their counterparts 30 years ago. This speaks to an attitude of Earth Day as another marketing opportunity rather than a clarion call for humankind to dramatically change their ways. If one upholds the idea that the current North American and Western European way of life is ultimately unsustainable in the long term, how do we realistically go about making a change? How do we go about living lightly on the earth? Does shaming people into living lightly on the earth really work? Our next guest spoke to me during a book tour. In an extensive conversation, we probed some aspects of human psychology and came to the revelation that the key to mobilizing meaningful change may lie in the very stories we tell ourselves and each other. 
The interview was recorded on April 6, 2015 in the production studio of Winnipeg radio station CKUW. I'm joined right now by Carrie Saxifridge. She is a, um, this has been the sustainability reporter for the Vancouver Observer. And uh, she is joining me right now on April the 6th, 2015, in the studio at CKUW. And we're going to be discussing uh, her latest project, which is a book. It's called The Big Swim. And it's a conversations uh, around a world adrift. And uh, she basically is uh, looking at the whole climate change dilemma from the perspective of the stories that we tell and how that can uh, bring us together in community and in facing this subject uh, in a more, I don't know, effective human way. I don't know how, how you would describe it, Carrie, but... Uh, I'd say heartfelt. Heartfelt. Mm. Well, that works, and it's very succinct. And uh, yeah. Um, so, Carrie, uh, welcome to CQW. Thank you. What inspired this uh, particular? Uh, this is your first book. This is my first book. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, you've you had um, your your background. You you started off. You were a, a nurse and uh, an environmental lawyer, based in the United States. That's right. And then you came up uh, a little bit later on, and uh, you've uh, written for the Vancouver Observer, and now you're here in uh, in Winnipeg uh, on this book tour. Yes. Okay. So tell tell us a little bit about uh, what inspired that uh, direction that you've taken. Well, there's a story in the book where I'm reading from a pile of old New Yorkers, and uh, there's a series of articles by Elizabeth Colbert, and it ends with a sentence that's something like, uh, it's hard to believe that a technologically advanced society would be destroying itself. But in essence, that's what we're doing. And it was it was the conclusion of all of these interviews with scientists. And I was sitting there lying in bed reading this next to my son, who was nine, reading Tintin in Tibet. And I had never really thought about global warming or climate change. And it just really hit me in my heart that the world would be fundamentally different for my son. And as a mom, uh, I I felt very responsible to do everything that I could. And so I would say that this is a book with climate change at its heart. But for myself, you know, I do read a lot of climate science. I enjoy science. But I don't read it all the time because I feel very overwhelmed. It's so big and the facts are so um, kind of disturbing. And so I understand why a lot of people haven't engaged with climate change. So in this book, I thought, you know, I can't tell this whole story, but I can talk about how I engage with climate change and I can tell stories about that. And maybe that will be an easier way in for people. You know, I think I think it's a very entertaining read and, you know, certainly it doesn't flinch away from the facts, but it talks about adventures that I've had sort of in response and ways of thinking that I've figured out that help me cope. And so, you know, on the one hand it's a very personal book, but I feel quite strongly that it doesn't end there. Really what I'm intending is that it helps people become emotionally engaged for political action because, you know, I, I've chosen a lower carbon lifestyle, but I, I don't fool myself that 
everybody's going to do that. And if everybody did do that, that that would be the answer. It's really a structural problem and it demands our political involvement, particularly as we recognize more and more how it affects the things that are dearest to us. Okay. And these are all your personal stories that like think or things that you've come across or, you know, experiences that you've had that to help bring us in that heartfelt and uh, that sense of being sort of authentic and uh, um, I don't know what the word I'm I'm looking for is, but uh, somehow effective. Yeah, and really true to the science, too, you know, to really look at the reality of it and not look away, but to Mm -hmm. find ways to to cope with that and to engage with that. Could you maybe read a, a, a one of the uh, stories that in their book, just to give our listeners a, a sense of what we're discussing? <laughs> yeah, I would love to. And um, this story is called The Ulican and the Snake. And it's from a time when I was writing for the Vancouver Observer about the Northern Gateway Pipeline and the First Nations opposition to that in British Columbia. I went up to Kitimat and had the opportunity to speak with two Heisla elders, Gerald Amos and Cecil Paul. Cecil Paul is... um, He's in his 80s and very tall, a very dignified man. So we're sitting in a coffee shop in Kitimat a huge blizzard outside, even even colder than Winnipeg over the past week. <laughs> They've been telling me stories. And um, at this point, Gerald gets up to leave for a moment, and, and Cecil leaned forward to get a better look at me. Can you turn off that tape recorder? I turned it off. Can you tell me why you're here? He asked. I'm writing news stories about the pipeline because I'm worried about climate change, I said. Then, for some reason, I started to cry. Cecil's kind gaze put me right into that part of my heart that sees how climate change is shredding the amazing, complex, abundant beauty of nature. Not the nature that we visit in parks, but the nature that sustains everything, all of us. My heart is breaking from the understanding of it, I said. If I write about it, I don't feel so bad. Cecil reached out a narrow hand with two fingers missing. He took mine. Thank you, he said, as he patted my hand. Now I will feel safe speaking with you. Then Gerald returned, and he started telling a story. I was born in 1949, Gerald said, so I grew up with Alcan. That's the aluminum company of Canada that is in Kitimat. One of my first memories is lying on my grandmother's feather bed down by the river, where people lived for weeks at a time processing ulican. Everybody had gone down to the river. I was nine, maybe ten years old. I lay there listening to this big humming noise, mmm, that I could hear clear from where I was. It was the first time I heard it, and I didn't know what it was. It was the big fans of the aluminum factory pushing out the effluent into the river, the beginning of the end for the Ulican run. The Ulican once provided half of the Heisla's calories. Tainted Ulican would be like a stock market crash that destroyed half the Heisla's wealth. At that time, Gerald said, we didn't know what was going on. Remember the story about being told we could drink the effluent, Cecil said? How close was that effluent pipe from the sea? It was very short, a mile or two, contaminated and spoiled. Once you are past it, the water is still pure. 
He indicated with a fork the idea of where the Kitimat effluent pipes might be, toward the bottom of the table. But the pipeline is like a snake, coming right into the headwaters of our river, Cecil said. Across the, tab across the top of the table came a spoon, the snake. If it breaks, the whole river is polluted. There's something here, only a few miles from the ocean, telling us it's no good. Cecil indicated the Kitimat effluent pipe, the fork. Are we going to listen to this? Before it started, the river was so good you could drink from it. Now, the river is dead. After a pause, he asked, How do I get through to you, to people, what I have seen? This is why you, we tell you the story of the Ulican, Gerald said. There are some changes that people have to accept, but there are other changes that are so crazy. You don't pollute your own drinking water. Yeah, that was a, you had turned your recorder off. I turned it back on for um, Gerald's story. Okay. I turned it off while Cecil and I had that exchange. Okay, that's, uh, yeah, that's a, um, it basically bring, breaks it down to very simple terms, doesn't it? Uh, it does. It does, that, that really we depend at a greater distance from, on the clean water, and they depend on a much closer proximity on it, but we all depend on it. Mm -hmm. What do you suppose it is about our society way of life that kind of blinds us to these very simple realities? Is it just a lack of awareness, or are we, uh, in some sense, uh, in denial? Um. George Marshall, in a book called Don't Even Talk About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change, talks about a few ideas. And one, he calls it a pool of worry. And basically, it's not our fault so much. It's something we can overcome that we evolved to really think about things in the short term. It's hard to think about climate change when you're making payment on your car or, you know, something that's more immediate, something that you have a demand you have to meet tomorrow. Climate change will get pushed to the edge. And also, you know, he talks about how difficult it is to really take in facts, the decisions and inspiration come through our emotional mind. He, he talks about the writer and the elephant, the writer being the analytical mind that gets to steer, but the elephant being the one who, if there's a disagreement, gets to choose the mm. direction. And the elephant speaks in terms of story and metaphor and images. So the information doesn't come to us in... Um, in terms we can understand. And then the third idea is just the proximity. You know, as we realize that it's been the, the hottest decade, uh, the last decade or the hottest year last year, and, you know, we have the different, like we have the algae blooms in Vancouver, we have the hills bare of snow, the ski slopes bare of snow. It's becoming much more immediate. But for myself, this is the past few years where I've been like, okay, you know, the the oyster farmers on my island can't grow their oyster spawn there anymore because the water is too acidic. It's it's like now the the physical impacts are clear and I think as they become clear people will become more motivated. I 
think when it comes to narratives and, and the stories that we, we get told, it, it seems like there are certain kinds of dominant narratives that uh, um, are capitalized on. I, I think in particular about the, the, the narrative, like as far as for narratives that sort of mobilize action, I'm thinking like way back around like World War II when there was, uh, you know, those messages about the, the, the evil villains that we've got to uh, – you know, mobilize and, and it worked, you know, people mobilized against that great threat. And, and we see similar mobilizations happening around, uh, um, you know, war on terrorism. And I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole other subject, but, you know, climate change as a villain that you can punch uh, or, or blow up or whatever, it, it, you're dealing with a completely different kind of uh, mentality there. And it seems like we don't, we're not accustomed to having those stories that can mobilize the, the kind of action that is appropriate under the circumstances. Yeah. Well, with the big swim, I tried to make it more of a quest. I think that enemy narratives can be a problem. I think we're facing a time of decreased resources. And if we are really speaking in terms of enemy narratives, we're setting up divisiveness and conflict. And if we can speak about climate change as our personal quest to create the world we want for ourselves and creatures and our children and so on, that, um, that it, it's a stronger invitation to everybody to get on board because we all have all of our skin in this game. Right. And when I was writing this book, one of the one of my writing colleagues who was particularly helpful had son, has sons who work in the oil sands. And she was not interested in reading about oil companies as bad actors. She basically wouldn't. That was a closed door. She's a very intelligent, compassionate woman. And she was interested in reading about how the Heisla um, are trying to protect their traditional territory like like that interested her and if I wrote about climate change too directly, she would write in the margin don't i don 't want to read about climate change, but I am interested in how you engage with climate change so that 's what I wrote about because, like I said, I, I really feel like we 're all in this boat, and as people realize how huge what huge changes we're, we're creating and the consequences, like, like it's really jaw dropping what we're doing. We're, we're creating massive extinctions and um, the war in Syria has been attributed to the four years of drought. And even the stable governments in Africa, like Kenya are being destabilized by it. You know, it's an insurance issue. It's a immigration issue. It's a, it's a national security issue. It's a safe drinking water issue. It's a food security issue. Like we all have everything at stake here. And as people realize that, you know, we don't have to all agree on everything. We don't have to be unified, but we can cooperate and we can respect each other's perspectives that that brought them to this this growing effort to stabilize the climate that's a very profound point you're making you know where we're moving beyond because i think there is a tendency among the more valiant uh, crusaders for the environment uh, that uh, you you create a kind of an us and them dynamic oh those evil oil companies or or what have you but then there are there are communities that uh 
they they find that the, their welfare and their families are, are are going to be very adversely affected, and so they have the sh- you you have individuals like the the friend you the, the individual you mentioned who, you know they they do have that feeling that you know there's a lot at stake here, but I don't want to be the person attacking my my brother or uncle or what have you. And so this is where uh, the, a storytelling that moves beyond the us and them. It's no, it's all us. Yeah, yeah, and you know, economic security is such a fundamental issue for people, and we get fed so much information about how economic security will come to us through expanding our fossil fuel infrastructure, and it's just it's just not true. We're we're creating massive insecurity and and huge financial consequences that it would cost so much less. It will cost so much less to prevent them now, and renewable energy still in the energy services sector creates more jobs and they're good local jobs. You know, it's not like going to Fort Mac to get a bunch of money and then come home and put in your solar panels. It's, it, it, it will allow people to align more with the, the long term, which I think we want to do. I think it's a basic, basic evolutionary drive and it's just really coming to terms with that. Is your experience, because there are people who are still in denial about the, the climate change situation, and I'm wondering if uh, your approach here through through storytelling, if you're able to make, I mean, even if you can't convince them, but that somehow they, they do become engaged in this overall communal effort. Is that, what what have your, your experiences been in terms of uh, trying to uh, connect that way? I've read that if you have really firm beliefs that contradict the facts, the facts just won't stick. And, you know, really the people in denial who have core beliefs that will not allow the existence of climate change, you know, like in a way I feel for them because they have the same things at stake that we do. And as the consequences get worse, they're, they're, they're going to be living them and facing them and seeing their children live through things that could have been prevented. Like in a way, you know, it's just a very sad thing. And it's hard for me to engage directly because, you know, people just say it's irrefutable. It's like 97% of the scientists and they're the scientists from all over the world. And that kind of scientific consensus is, you know, what what mm-hmm. can you say? And actually, I want to read a little thing from The Economist, which is not, you know, the most progressive liberal <laughs> magazine in the world. They're, they're very pro-capitalism. And in an editorial, they said, a hundred years from now, looking back, the only question that will appear important about the historical moment in which we now live is the question of whether or not we did enough to arrest climate change. And, you know, I think, I think history is going to judge us for how quickly we can mobilize. Hmm. Um, you're no doubt familiar with Naomi Klein's recent book, which, uh, Basically, you know, this changes everything and it challenges our, our whole economic system. Is there a um, – do your – does your writing on the subject kind of dovetail with uh, her own sort of more you know, non – sort of more factual presentation? 
Yeah, there's one chapter in which I take on the neoliberal paradigm to some degree, like in a lighter way, not as analytical as she does, in a story-based way. And I'm frankly ambivalent about her approach because I think it makes sense, and I'm not sure that we're going to solve climate change as a, I mean, solve capitalism as a condition precedent to climate change. I think that we actually have the tools in place, market-based tools like a price on carbon and stop subsidizing the fossil fuel industry and um, regulation, carbon tax, cap and trade, like all of these things, all of these policy mechanisms exist and we can implement them. And, you know, a lot of people talk about climate change as an immense market failure because the costs are externalized to both people who have no way to deal with them and also to us as taxpayers when we're paying for floods, we're paying for infrastructure that is destroyed, we're paying for um, the consequences of drought, uh, lakes that are getting filled with algae, like we're paying for a lot as taxpayers and it would be nice to have the choice up front. You know, do you want these things to happen? Because if you do, you've got to pay, you know, the cost of fixing them, which the most recent thing I read is just for health effects is about $77 per ton. And I've also read $250 per ton for all of the social consequences of carbon. So it's a lot. If that was part of the price of fossil fuels, if we were paying for the consequences up front, renewables would be much more competitive. Like basically the fossil fuel in term in pure market terms is hugely subsidized both by actual subsidies and also by the externalization of the cost of the impacts. And a lot of those people who get the costs, most of them, it's just in pure suffering. Like nobody's helping <laughs> helping <laughs> them with the, the difficulties of getting food and getting water. And that's mostly women. Gandhi famously said that you should be the change you wish to see in the world. You live a low-carbon lifestyle. Is uh, Do you see uh, readers of uh, this book as becoming uh, – as moving in that direction? Is that something that uh, will be one of the, the consequences of uh, people reading your book? Is that your ultimate hope or – well, I think the few people who don't fly are pretty excited about like the 10 people I know are excited about yeah. a book that advocates that. And, you know, all of these things are up to the individual. Like a low carbon lifestyle isn't the structural solution we need. For myself, I feel like the moral consistency it gives me makes me a stronger advocate for climate stability. And there's to some a certain degree that I just don't want the moral burden of my luxury costing people other their necessities and you know the causation is so massive and intricate but but the wealthiest eight percent of the world that's people with an income of over forty thousand dollars of which i am one um create fifty percent of the carbon emissions like for me that's hard to live with i feel much lighter if I know that I'm closer to the world average. And also, I just, disclaimer, this is a process. I am so far from perfect. I mean, I love an avocado sandwich. And when my mom died, I hopped right on an airplane. I was with her for the last two weeks of her life. And, you know, I, I will 
engage in fossil fuel. And it's more with, and it's more of a uh, goal that everything I do could be fueled by clean energy. Hmm. Okay. I, um, so engaging on this, uh, huge threat to humanity doesn't have to be, uh, a labor of doom and gloom and, oh my God, what's, uh, we things are so terrible. It, it can be a joyful process. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would say that a lot of us just are on a quest for meaning and purpose. And by engaging, it builds meaning and purpose and a sense of belonging with other people. There's, you know, there's a strong values-based community that's arising around this. And, you know, and they're like good people and they're people who are really trying to do the right thing. And I love being with them. I love this book tour. I love everybody who I've met has, has taught me more and just filled me with, with admiration. And I really feel fortunate that I get to engage with these people. And also, you know, I, it's, I've had to look for bigger perspectives, like not Everything being about me as a human, fulfilling my individual needs and desires, everything when I want it. And, uh, and I really had to enlarge my perspectives. And, you know, one of them is through looking at, at deep time and realizing how massive the history of the earth is and how we're just like this tiny little moment and sort of the beauty of getting to participate in this huge, magnificent, intricate um, situation that is that is uh, being on earth and uh, and and other other things too you know okay well Ke uh, Carrie Saxifridge it's been a great uh, pleasure having you on our station and uh, uh, look forward to uh, your upcoming project <laughs> oh good <laughs> thank you so much for having me Michael for sure a pleasure so, Carrie Saxifridge is the author of The Big Swim, Coming Ashore in a World Adrift. And uh, if people wish to get in touch, you can, I've, you can go to my website, carriesaxifridge.org. No, .com, carriesaxifridge.com. I've got a Facebook writer page, and the book is available at McNally Robinson. And um, I think I can promise you a very entertaining read. Okay. Thank you very much, Carrie. Thank you. One final note. Before we close the program, the Global March Against Chemtrails and Geoengineering takes place Saturday, April 25th in scores of centers across the planet. Please visit www.globalmarchagainstchemtrailsandgeoengineering.com for more details. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.